Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And we are joined today by Gabe DiGennato, uh, Katie Galetti, and George Cedarquist. I'm waving. Yeah. Podcast gold. Both hands. <laughs> Both hands. Thank you all so much for coming today. Thank, Thank you. you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah. How's your morning going? Oh, it just started. I, yeah, <laughs> it, it really did. Yeah, no, we like squeezed it in, and I, pre- I I appreciate that, and I also appreciate the like general uh, like agreement that very busy people make to like just make it work for each other. I mean, George has been up for four hours already. Exactly. So. Really? Eight forty five, man. I haven't finished throwing up by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, with, with two kids, you are up quite early, but um, there's lots of time in the day for everything to go horribly wrong. Yeah. So. <laughs> We're doing our first stumble through of Johnny Johnson tonight. Emphasis on stumble. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, that's um, that is what we have you all to, on to talk about today. Um, so I know a few people that have worked with Chicago Focus Alberta. I don't know a lot about the organization, um, like entirely in concept and mission statement and all these things. So do any of y'all uh, feel comfortable talking a little bit about uh, about the company? Absolutely. Chicago Folks Operetta has been around for about 10 years or so. Um, it's run by a man called Gerald Franson, and it's definitely his brainchild. The, the company's mission is really to, to perform works of the old world, which tends mm-hmm. to focus on the German repertoire. Uh, so... Lehar, yes, absolutely. So things like The Merry Widow or The Land of Smiles. But also looking at some of those other Austrian composers like, um, well, Kalman, I think was Hungarian, actually. Uh, and then German composers as well of that era, the 10s, the 20s, and the 30s, such as Kurtweil. Right. Cool. Very Most, cool mostly uh, lesser known stuff, right? That guy, all the all the shows that he's done in the past couple years. Exactly, like, I would I say Lehar is by far and away the most recognized composer yeah, 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 on yeah. the Chicago folks operetta repertoire, and for many people, nobody's going to know who even Lehar is. Mm-hmm. So when you start to talk about the rep, yeah, I mean it is definitely less obscure to the point where. Gerald, the artistic director, tends to do his own translations of the pieces mm. from their original German into English. That's so interesting. And I also think it's super interesting living in that distinction because, like, it is... You get into some weird and interesting plot things and um, subject material when you're living in this. Things that you can, can, mm. still, like, can still consider part of, like, an operatic tradition, but also something that's still very, like... I guess recent is the right word, or at least in the same kind of in the same era. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're not doing the bohems. We're not trying right. to translate Mozart's Italian. You know, <laughs> we're doing things that should be somewhat recognizable, at least in the last century. Right. And yet, it's in a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Completely different. It's, and I mean, at least we can, to some extent, relate to like the tens and twenties and thirties. Like we at least have some like referential point as an audience. We both have electricity. We both have (laughs) (laughs) for starters. Right. Um, Cool. Well, yeah. So out of that uh, came Johnny Johnson. So uh, can we hear a little bit about that? What, uh, what that's about? Yeah. That's one surprising thing is that it it was, uh, doesn't need to be translated. Uh, It was written by uh, the book was written by Paul Green, who is a quite famous Pulitzer prize winning American playwright. Um, did a lot of pieces uh, in the South, like based in uh, North Carolina. A lot of really um, impactful, not period pieces, like regional, regional plays, mm-hmm. um, which he was recognized for. Um, and he 
was really inspired then after like doing his only new york thing got inspired by the work the epic theater of bertolt brecht um and started dabbling in that and i'm sure hooked up with kurt vile through that association mm-hmm. and uh they came up with johnny johnson when they like shipped off to like a little cabin for a summer with uh oh, i forget how to pronounce kurt vile's wife's name lotelenia lotelenia thank mm-hmm. you um so the three of them got together and came up with Johnny Johnson, which is Vile's first piece of music for the American theater. All of his other stuff had been for Germany. Um, and it's based on, uh, loosely based on a good shoulder, a good soldier, Schweik. Um, Try saying that after a couple of gyms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ten times fast. Um, but I feel that way with some of my lines, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And it's loosely based on that, um, and it really was, uh, it's a pacifist piece based in World War I. They wrote it in the beginnings of World War II, so they were like, hey guys, don't you remember what happened? Yeah. (laughs) Let's try not to do this again. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, despite their best efforts, it didn't work. Despite Um, the smashing success (laughs) of Johnny Johnson and the cautionary tale thereof. Um, so that's that's kind of the the build up of, of of the context of who wrote it and and um, why it was important. But go, it is feel free to. It, talk it is about interesting it, so. that that um, so Paul Green, the playwright, was doing his own thing very successfully in mm. America. Meanwhile, Kurt Weill is in Germany and he's been doing all this work with Bertolt Brecht, right? So they've done Three Penny Opera at this point. They've done um, Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany as well. So Weill is already into this idea of the alienation effect and this mm. this distance between the performer and between the audience that the audience is always there. And so he takes those principles and then applies them to, to Paul to this collaboration with Paul Green. And that's why the piece is so unique, is mm-hmm. that it does have this very grafted feel between this sort of German music and this German aesthetic with what I would call a fairly traditional approach to playwriting almost from Paul Green. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a, almost like that Americanized vial show. Mm-hmm. It's very wacky, and I and I haven't lived too much in the music because. <laughs> so I'm Johnny Johnson. I yeah, <laughs> I have one song, uh, which is not something that I'm like offended by, uh, but it's at the very end of the show, and um, it's okay. There, yeah. there. <laughs> so it, we, were talk, talk. we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> Letting it out now. We were talking about how um, uh, it's a play with music. George mentioned earlier, yeah, because um, there are there are characters there. I guess there are tracks of the show of characters, actors who play multiple characters who have more songs than than I do, and I'm literally on stage the entire show. Um, so it's it's a very um, hard word to be like, yeah, it's an operetta. No, it's a musical. Ah, it's it's really very violesque in that whole. Mm-hmm. They're using music to interrupt the flow of the play. Yeah, um, and I totally forget why we got on. That no, subject, but that's it sounds so. it sets up a lot of really great questions. So, um, the I have a few questions I'm going to ask. But the first is, um, in my like working in Chicago and just picking up random facts about people that I've I've met a few times. I know that you studied at the Mammoth School, right? Is that I don't know if that's what it's called, but right, uh, you being me, George. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I, podcast. School. No, I I didn't study at the Mammoth School, but certainly David Mammoth's approach to acting, which was boiled down into this book called right. Practical Handbook for the Act- Actor. That is definitely the uh, approach that I take when working on text. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm interested in that. Uh, I'm interested in these like extreme play traditions that are or, uh, theater traditions, straight theater traditions that um, where they can find parallels in opera. And I think it's really interesting hearing about, especially vile generally, I, I kind of always think has that it lends itself really well to a lot of straight theater traditions and things like that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about it, if you don't mind, um, how that's kind of come into play here. Yeah, and Katie, I'm going to throw this question to you because you're in the show as well. You're up there acting it. I mean, how do you approach your character of Minnie Bell, the love interest of the story, in terms of the acting of it? It was a very different experience. I was, again, joking with Gabe when we started this, that the last time I did dialogue was I just yelled, tea time, in Gilbert and Sullivan. (laughs) So (laughs) taking on a project that was mostly spoken was very different. And it is that grafted quality where you have a scene where everything's actually moving. You know, and when you're singing an aria or when you're singing Cherubino or whatever else, you are saying the same phrase. You I mean you're you're acting other things, but you're you're saying the same words over and over again. And in this, you have minutes upon minutes of scenes moving. You have dialogues. You have things where you're you are interacting with other people, and then you stop and sing. And yeah. Minnie Bell happens to be one of the characters that has two and a half like songs at, that she sings, and it is one of those things where she runs on stage and says like a, a lot of Johnny this and Johnny that, and then she just stops and sings things. And it's it's very little songs, it's it's kind of kitschy songs, and it was a process for me to break that apart and say, okay, um, what is my goal here? What am I? Who am I talking to? And what do I? And what am I trying to accomplish mm-hmm. in these two minutes before I have to stop and sing this? And then how do I get that back into that scene and make it mean anything on stage? So I have a, something you said sparked a question. You said that. In, in song and singing, you generally say the same thing over and over again. Correct. Whereas in dialogue, you've got one shot to nail the emotion of a line. Yes. And we are not going to throw away that <laughs> shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I've not been awake for very long, and for a second I thought you were referencing Eight Mile. And oh, I was gonna, very yeah. no, great, yes. But no, Hamilton. Yeah. Anyway, so that's where I'm at. Um, Multiple levels. So, um, so I'm wondering, um, as someone who has mostly done arias and scenes and stuff like that, how has the kind of like high stakes game of like, saying a line and then moving on from it been through this process. As George, I'm sure can tell you, we change it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one of the first things that Gabe and I did when we met, which was at the audition, hilariously, um, is that we said, hey, let's get together and just read through stuff and talk through stuff and see what it feels like, like what the where we're going with this. And that helped immensely to be able to say, all right, it's not so much one shot so much as it's this is what you're saying in real time. Because every time I, I feel like the trap that singers get into and that I get into particularly is that you get into that, okay, I have to say this really perfectly and has to do it. And then you're like, okay, my moment's coming. I'm going to say it like this. And then <laughs> who does that? It's who almost, does that it's almost like sing, trying to sing that one high note in an aria. Yeah. Like yeah. if you base, if you base the you entire like, aria on that one climactic moment uh, and you bomb it, like the whole thing isn't, the whole thing isn't gone to trash. Mm-hmm. And similarly, it's, it's, uh, more of a mindset change for when you're acting online. Like, yes, there are certain beats that you want to hit, certain shifts that you want to really 
emphasize but if you just if you are successful in living in the the text and living in in the in the emotional world that the text creates um as long as you live that truthfully which is a word that comes up with us a lot um I think that translates to the audience instead of saying the exact same words. Because we're, we're changing lines for, for me, uh, tangent, uh, Paul Green, North Carolina stuff. Almost every single line that Johnny says, and, and Minnie Bell says, has some sort of southern twang in it. Okay. And we felt mm-hmm. that that didn't, um, that would further alienate, and not in a good way, not in like a yeah. Brexian way, um, the audience from my character and almost make them look down on him because he's like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so instead we're taking out all of that dialect. Cool. Um, and <laughs> again, what was I talking about before this? I, this is well, we're talking about the, the tempo of the line. Yes, yes, I think yes, this, yes, is, yes. this is the challenge for the singer coming to, the, to act in a piece like this, is that tempo is very, very flexible in the play in a way that it's not in the opera, right? Mm-hmm. Like 95% of the opera is, is in a very specific tempo. Those tend to be very throughout the piece, but they're very, very specific. <coughs> in the play, bless you, in okay. the play, it, it has a lot of ebb and flow. And the danger is, is that the operatic singer coming to the stage is going to do more flow, which we, by which I mean slow, then do more ebb, which is to compress things. Mm-hmm. And so my note as a director to the singers is constantly pick up your cues, reduce the amount of time between the lines, and overlap mm. the lines, otherwise we're going to be here all night. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. That's kind of what I was uh, curious about is um, because of the, the idea of like phrasing, I feel like in straight theater has to be so much more across the course of the entire dialogue, not just like I almost think that that's like, I think the only thing we even get close to that is recit, which is such a hard thing for people to understand how to do when they're first learning how to sing opera. But that's it, still even metered in a sense, recit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, and, and that and that is the problem with, with young singers, you know, doing recit, is that they do like a quarter note followed by two eighths notes. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you've got to get into this mindset that recit was simply the best way those composers had of trying to reflect the rhythm and duration of human speech. But essentially, you should just, you know, ebb and flow with that as much as you possibly can. And I think Mm -hmm. the hard part about that that is hard to teach, especially in academia, that that I'm just now becoming accustomed to, is that is that permission to play? Is that in everything that you do, in singing and in acting, and be able to say, all right, I did this this one rehearsal this way, I'm going to completely just turn it on its head and try it this, mm-hmm. this way, a different time, mm-hmm. and change that pacing, however you want to do it, and take ownership of that moment and make it into whatever you want to do. And that that's hard in opera as an art form because there is such a hold on tradition, which is therefore a reason, and I am not suggesting that we upheaval the system, but you know, hashtag patriarchy. (laughs) But but being able to go into a new piece for us, like something that is really like new in comparison Mm -hmm. to half the stuff that I feel like I've done in the last Mm -hmm. year. There's there's no no standard for Johnny Johnson. There's not a lot of standards. And we get a lot of time to say, all right, what if Minnie Bell is actually a horrible person. Spoiler alert, she is. Uh, I mean, Gabe and I spent a lot of time saying, like, how do we make this like likable? How do we make like our relationship really real? And then we kind of got in staging, and it was like, you this know, isn't real. I, I don't think it is. Like, what? If, what if she really is just this caricature that everybody's kind of supposed to hate? Like, mm-hmm. she's she's supposed to be this 
villain, for lack of a better word, that mm. is only a villain because she fulfills that role. How about just antagonist? Antagonist. I like villain. Mm. I'm, I'm okay with being a villain. <laughs> okay. okay <laughs> a villain's much more dramatic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you feel very important. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. But, I mean, that you should give yourself permission to be able to turn that on its head, to change pacing, and to... It's something for young singers really to learn and to do is just to change things. See what happens by changing things. So as um, as are, are you? I'm sorry. Are you a soprano or a, a mezzo? A mezzo. Okay. Don't you hear? Has to be voice. <laughs> you know, because you made me be here at eight forty. It's, it's nine a.m. I am a soprano, and my voice is also red. Also red. Um, so that changes my question because I was going to ask like as a soprano. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This is the first time I've played an ingenue, probably mm. outside of yeah. and Hermia. But still, it's like I was laughing that it's been a while since I've been a lady on stage. <laughs> <laughs> You've been a woman, but not necessarily I'm not a lady. <laughs> <laughs> Arguable for many belts, but still, <laughs> being a girl instead of a boy, uh, and that changes things too. Just what that means in your body, how that how you change your voice in dialogue versus how you change your tone in singing as well. Yeah. And sounding young uh, and making, interesting gender role comment, making a feminine lilt to what you're saying or uber feminine for Minnie Bell in a lot of ways. Um, well, the, the, uh, dive into some of that character because <laughs> she's, the way, the way you're describing her now makes her come across differently than I think like talking about all the femininity and all fair, that kind of stuff. Fair. So um, Johnny Johnson, our hero of the show, <laughs> uh, has um, in the very beginning, it's a girl he's very interested in. We assume that they have sort of been courting for a while. It's Minnie Bell, Minerva Tompkins, um, and she is, I think, kind of the doll of the town, not camp doll, but <laughs> the um, just the little teacher's pet. Princess Queen, um, she you know stands in front of the whole town and like speaks her piece of the poem that she read that she memorized for this. She might have even written it. It's not very good. Uh, and Johnny's this hero right now of the town, and they have a courtship we assume. And when everyone decides to go to war, Minnie Bell is all for it. She does exactly what is expected of her, and the country says go to war, so we are going to war, and it's going to be great, and this romantic ideal of what's going to happen. And Johnny's not about it. And she just assumes that if he wants to be with her, he'll do what he's supposed to, whatever mm -hmm. she says yeah. he should do. And they become engaged, kind of. Without... Without saying really saying it. Uh, and they kind of have a fight about whether or not they should be going to war. And Johnny has to find this reason to do it. And eventually he does and goes off to war kind of for Minnie Bell and as well as his principles. Um, that idea of truth and love for him as well as what he really believes. And all I... <laughs> Minnie Bell just wants to be at war. And she shows up like several times in this, again, this trope of the wife at home. The She sings this farewell song where she literally runs on stage and says, Johnny, you're leaving! And sings like a two-stroke <laughs> song about goodbye. I love you so much. It's going to be so hard to be away from you. Uh, and then he hears her in his dreams um, singing their love song that they sang in the beginning together. And she kind of just keeps showing up. And it's it's never quite right. Mm. And she's just always this very hard into the uh, conformity. It's kind of what we talked about as her values. When is. I come back from the war, you ask me how many Germans I killed. Yep. Like. Yep. 
she's just she's just into it. <laughs> and furthermore, we we find out that when Johnny returns to America, having been traumatized by the war, this is in Act Three, is that Minnie Bell, shock horror, has run off with another man in the town who's been on the he we've met him he's been in the he's in the first act uh this young mineral water salesman yeah. played by scappy uh frequenter uh, josh, josh lewis <gasps> yeah. yeah cool cool he would sell mineral water <laughs> <laughs> Type, typecast yes. Yes. Chekhov's mineral mineral water salesman yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he's this young businessman who kind of gets himself out of the war because my mother <laughs> my mother thinks this is all ridiculous and wants me to just marry safe and be, you know, happy and successful, which is <laughs> what every mom wants, which is kind of uh, I say indirectly criticized for that because Johnny's our hero and she's like, "No, nah, you don't want Johnny. You don't well, want principles. You don't want that. You want safety and just what makes sense." The really interesting juxtaposition of our two characters uh I'm talking to Katie, not mm-hmm. me and George's characters, <laughs> um, is, is that is that I am looked. Uh, people view me as kind of like a silly, bumpus kind of, uh, just stupid guy, and in reality, I have the strongest moral foundation of really anybody in the show. Like I know what I believe. I know I am always searching for truth, and I'm always searching for. Um, reason in in everything like I, I have so many lines that could be just like hippie bumper stickers <laughs> that, that, that not maybe not hippie bumper stickers but like just uh, it, it, it's so I, I, I am so you know what I believe in what I stand for and I will face up against anything that goes against that meanwhile Minibel <clears throat> appears strong but in reality is so just like turns on a dime she was for peace when everybody was for peace. Now we're on for war. Oh, now she's on for war. Like it's and, and she finds that to be what is right, what what is strong, what is what is um, taking life in your own hands kind of situation. Well, I think the unsettling part about that is that she is very strong in, in whatever she's told to do, whatever that herd mentality is. And that is I think part of the message of the piece is that you have people that will go all in when you tell them to and then they're like oh but war we we said war let's try that and then they go all in for that without a thought without mm-hmm. a second and everyone else Johnny gets trampled because of it they're the only ones that are in this crazy world and she gets wrapped up in it mm-hmm. and something that we talked about which is never really mentioned but like they keep mentioning in the play that her name is Minerva which I kept saying, why? Like, why are these references to Greek and Roman mythology? Like, what is this? And Minerva, or Athena in Greek mythology, is the strategist. She's the war goddess. And she (laughs) is this steadfast symbol of craft. And for Minnie Bell, to me, that really cracks me up because it's like, you know, she manipulates Johnny a lot to get what she wants. All for that one purpose that you're not really sure why. <laughs> like why <laughs> she wants to have, be all about war or why she's going for these goals, but she does anything to get that. While in the background, she's going after anguish. She's going after her own business, her own what she wants. And Johnny, again, is left to be this like beacon of normality and morals mm. and nothing goes right. <laughs> so, sorry, were you... 
Here's my question for you. Um, it's from the bit that we've been talking. I get the sense that you have a pretty under, like you have a pretty nuanced opinion on like feminism and feminist theory, and so it's interesting to me that um, the the what it sounds like uh, this character ends up doing is I uh, I mean to and correct me if I'm totally off base here, um, but if it's like stereotypical behavior, like so I'm interested in I'm always interested in when we get into like extremely. Um, maybe educated is the wrong word, but, like, conversations about plot, about opera, about, like, dramatic theory and everything. Um, and, uh, like, in what would, what someone calls, like, postmodernism debate is, like, this extremely heavy, like, cultural picking apart um, gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, sexual identity, gender identity, all these things. Um, so uh, I'm curious, when you look at a role like what it sounds like, and I think to some extent maybe even Johnny Johnson is this way too, um, where it seems like the behavior, as far as like the attitude to war at the time, um, the role of the woman, all these things, seems very stereotypical. So I'm curious when you come at that with being a 21st century person aware of the patriarchy and aware of of like you know 70 cents to the dollar, all these things. Um, how do does that end up applying to your role preparation and kind of um, yeah? How how do you? Yeah, I think we can, George can talk a lot about concept in this too, is that like sometimes what works best for that, at least for me, is to play into that hard. I mean, she going all the way into being that, you know, drop the man for what she wants, um, being, uh, what is the word? You know, the stereotypical kind of bitch girl. <laughs> mm does what she can for what she wants. Um, she's just, you know, the popular and flirty. And man-eater then, kind of, would man-eater maybe? Yes, or, uh, yes, yes, yes. Man-eater kind of, and playing so hard into that that people sit back and go like, oh God, wait so, a yeah. second. I, so I think the challenge for, for Katie, for the actors, and God, I don't know, because I don't perform, so who am I to say? It seems that there's a central conflict, right? Is that the play requires that the character of Minnie Bell serve a very specific function, which is to be totally unprincipled, to go where the money is, to go where the love is, to go where the lust is, right? We need that character to serve that function so that Johnny Johnson can appear as the only principled person in the whole show. Mm. However, as a performer, you can't judge the character. And so you've got to, as the performer, you've got to find a way to, to reconcile your personal differences with the, with the function of the character and then tap into this idea of like, well, it's going to be a thrill to play Minibel because, like, she always gets what she wants and she's not principled. And that's really fun and that's really mm. exciting. Even though those are not my own values, yeah. says Katie in mm -hmm. her head, I have to, this is the function of, of the role. We were staging the scene in Act 3 the other day and we both came out on stage and was like, oh, you're such an awful person. It would make us both, like, physically uncomfortable to have those exchanges because in real life, like, friends we're, we're very touchy we're very happy. just like hugging like yay friendship and then well. like there's things where on I'm stage she has to like uh, yeah, yeah you have to prevent yourself from from like touching me or like mm -hmm. from comforting me because like i look really upset and she'd be like no what the fuck sorry that's, that's just part of the course okay. of the podcast. <laughs> so cats, cats, cats doing weird things. things yeah um so yeah it, it's it's very much so not judging the character like george said and oh. and almost enjoying the fact that you get to do things that you wouldn't Otherwise. And serving the story. I mean, yeah. you're, you're telling a story here. Like, uh, 
you know, if you've ever played D&D, &D, I'm going to show my true colors here. Um, <laughs> if you, uh, we play uh, we every weekend almost. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So On we it. just started getting into something called Numenera, and um, I, our DM is a musical theater actor. It's Matt Edmonds uh, and a singer, and he does such a great job of just embodying every character and he does terrible things to us terrible things <laughs> where he cripples us or just makes these characters so horrible and i'm sitting here in this game yelling at these characters mm -hmm. who is just him and he's like you know that i'm not really doing this for real right and i'm like i know but right now i hate you <laughs> and i know that you're doing this just to be evil but it's just enjoying that stepping into something entirely different to serve that story, to make this world real mm -hmm. for people. And to, you know, say that Johnny Johnson is the only non-insane person in this world. And to make everyone feel sympathy for you. It's like people tell you on stage, like, you're not a king because of the way you act. You're a king because of the way everybody else bows down to you. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, that's our job. And it's fun. And that is kind of, I think, the central idea of the piece or at least in this conception right is is the question we're investigating is what does it feel like to be the voice of reason in an age of madness mm. and that's that's the function that Johnny's character serves right and that's why the play is relevant I said this to the cast at the first rehearsal is that the play is relevant not because it's about war because well a war is bad that's undebatable and B war is eternal the question really is like what is that feeling when you you look around and you're like god the world is fucked up and why am i the only person who can see it and nobody else can see it mm. that's what we're trying to tap into in this play do you want to talk more about the i think really smart i want concept. you to talk more oh, about great it, <laughs> <laughs> okay i've brought some notes out here now. uh so we're setting it in um in a carnival of sorts, which is different than a circus, because a circus is very happy and, and you bring your kids and you laugh and you have fun. A carnival is that kind of dingy, questionable road show that comes around to different towns and just creates a lot of trash. Um, <laughs> and there's different tents for for the sideshow and and the bearded lady and and the dirty questionable things and then there's people coming around who look funny with all the all the freak shows and all that kind of stuff and uh, as the show progresses in, in act one we open in the town and and it's before the circus has arrived uh, and then the war is declared and, and things start to kind of d divulge from there is that the right no not divulge divulge what word am I looking for? Well, degrade, degrade. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I Thank you. Um, and then in the in the second act, when the war starts, that's when we get into the carnival feel, which just makes the whole voice of reason in a world of madness mm. even more potent. Because I'm still like hanging out in my normal uniform, and everybody else is in in early 20th century, almost like grotesque. Cl clown like ah, it's just very they look very weird and they act very weird and they they what they're doing is just so not normal but to them it's just par for the course because they're in a carnival and then act three the circus or circus i'm doing it again the carnival leaves town and leaves behind all of the debris and trash and and uh almost pseudo PTSD for me or for me it's legitimate PTSD mm -hmm. in the, as, as Johnny but how when circuses leave 
um, carnivals, 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 carnivals leave. <laughs> they, uh, they, they also leave behind a lot of things for other people to deal with, mm-hmm. without really taking into account themselves. Um, so it's very, it's very true George Cedarquist. Uh, minimalist, but be, but 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 efficiently and beautifully so. That's a juicy man. There's like ten thousand props. <laughs> yeah. I carry like forty thousand of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really, uh, really, I th- I think just smart, beautiful um, application that just further emphasizes. The absurdity of it all, and that really the, uh, ties beautifully into the whole Brechtian idea of of alienation for your for your audience, because mm. they're not gonna really fall in love with anybody. They're not really going to see us as one person because everybody's playing like eight characters. Mm-hmm. We have a hashtag end others when we <laughs> when we were introducing ourselves at the show. We would say like, "Hi, my name is blah blah," and I'm playing blah blah blah. And others. <laughs> that was the problem is that the piece was written during the Works Progress Administration days. So there are, there's like 60 or 70 roles to be filled. And every single scene is somewhere else. And there's multiple scene changes. And the whole idea was to like employ as many people as possible. Yeah. When the piece was first done, it was done um, at the Group Theater in New York City. It was directed cool. by Lee Strasberg, designed by Donald Onslager. Elia Kazan is in the original cast, but like that's theater technology and theater aesthetics have obviously moved on since then, right? And where we had multiple people and multiple scene changes, now we're very much in an aesthetic of like we want a beautiful floor and a single chair, and that's all that the design needs to be. So as as Gabe recounted, my designers and I, we really had to tap into some sort of a metaphor. And this, I, this metaphor of that war is a carnival, I think is visually interesting. I think helps us keep in the period of the piece, which is essential because it is about World War One, but also allows for a lot of visual interest and a way to kind of keep the storytelling moving, essentially. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all about, for the directors listening to the podcast, you'll know that tackling the transitions first is essential and you cannot leave the transitions to the end especially in a show that has oh god six plus nine plus three 18 scenes and it basically that are all in different places that was really good math that was <laughs> it, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, uh the recent sondheim uh, revivals that happened on Broadway. I mean, um, recent, maybe ten years ago. It's specifically the Sweeney Todd, where where just like Johnny Johnson, the original production is a cast of thousands. It's this huge epic production that that, that whole turning box, uh, and then the in the revival, it's the, the the actors are playing their own instruments. It's this little almost like black box kind of thing with very scant um, sets and, and and productions. And I feel like our production, we we are similarly um, boiling down. Johnny Johnson into that kind of like here are the themes and to me that's more powerful uh, I guess in, in a different way not in a better or worse way but I really enjoy the <clears throat> the stripping of the grandiose um, that that this this kind of approach to a production like that uh, and I'll be clear that it's not a budgetary thing I mean the, the yeah. company is actually has very reasonable budgets it's it's really a question of aesthetics and what's the best way to tell a story that was written in the late 30s 
in a 2017 language. Yeah, I'm actually, so I'm like, that's kind of, um, that plays into my next question really well, which is, um, I'm, I'm curious more about the role of war in all of this, because I think it's really interesting, the conversations we're having about it, um, compared to the way we think of war now, and, and maybe part of this has to do with, like, a looking back fondly on the 20s thing of, like, nostalgia, and, like, being like, oh, it was such a great time, I'd love to, and it's like, do you, do you, <laughs> but, um... All these 20 parties, it's like, well... They should probably then be racist too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. bring back all of it instead yeah. of dry the clothes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I'm interested in kind of. I mean, the way that war is viewed now, at least, especially uh, in urban environments, is like, it's like, why are we still involved in all of these wars that we're in now, or like conflicts, or whatever you want to call them? Um, but you know, World War One was such an encompassing endeavor I mean it was so easy it seems like it was so easy to get swept up into it um, and so I'm curious uh, you know coming from this 2017 world I think it's really hard to not be paying attention to what's going on globally in the world and, and um, even nationally um, uh, you know how has that uh, has there been a like hard line at the door of like that needs to stay out um, has there been moments where you're like this can really feed into what we're doing here. Um, and, uh, yeah. Here's what's important to me about the First World War is that, in my opinion, it's kind of the first conflict that the men, and they were all men that were fighting, that they were able to process the emotional scarring of that war. Mm -hmm. And they kind of did it in two ways. One way was in private, through psychoanalysis, which was also being developed at that time in the 1900s and in the 1910s by Jung and Freud and mm -hmm. um, But that also they were able to talk about it metaphorically through poetry and through song and through music. But essentially it's the first time where these men are shown as fallible and these men are able to talk about the damage and the psychological effects that this war has had on. We would call it PTSD now if you're looking mm -hmm. at guys coming back from the first Iraq war or the second Iraq war. Uh, I told a story at the, the opening meeting about my, this is to the cast, uh, about my great-grandfather who was an Englishman and he had he fought in the first world war and when he was out there on the battlefield somehow uh, a German shot at him and this bullet went through his helmet and missed his brain but deafened him and so he came back to he survived the war and he came back to England and retired in his little village in Staffordshire and uh, his sort of famous story that he would tell his family members and, and tell the other people in the village is that he would say you lose a leg and they call you a hero you lose your hearing and they say, silly old fool, why can't he hear? Mm. And to me, that story was really about this effect of PTSD and like the wounds that we cannot see are the hardest wounds to have to grapple with. And I think that is really the question for Johnny in this play, especially when we get to act three. Like the war finishes at the end of act two and we still have 30 minutes left of the show it's a big chunk of the show to find out how is this man going to deal with the effects of this war mm. yeah the uh the big thing about 
World War One was so monumental in every single aspect of itself. The 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 numbers, uh, the the shifts that occurred militarily, uh, techn- technologically within the war. It was the first instance of chemical warfare. <clears throat> chemical warfare, first Fight instance of tanks, yeah. first instance of. Um, Automatic tr- rifles, I think. Yeah, and mm-hmm. trench trench warfare, mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. putting putting those two together. If the old the old guard and the new new guard just ramp those numbers up, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and uh, like George said, the 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 shell shocked. Nobody had dealt with the physical and um, psychological repercussions of all those new things, mm-hmm. and that was uh, just mind boggling. So so I guess back to uh, Dan's question of. Yes, we our our aspect of it of how we feel about war now because it's everything so globalized as opposed to back then when when you would just read the local paper and kind of get right the the straight up and and it, but I think the bigger ideas are just so so similar. Like we 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 we're we're talking a lot about that whole hashtag resist thing now and how how it's so applicable to Johnny Johnson and uh, there there really is no. There's no difference. Yes, the 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 way we get our news, the way we get our information, but ah, it's just it's just the same the same shit, different day kind of mm. kind of situation. Unfortunately, because um, nobody really learns from that, or mm-hmm. or, or however you want to um, critique that that when kind of. You view. talk about people being aware and how this works for us on this level, and the last war that the American people were fighting was that civil war on our own backyards. I mean, there were the women were bandaging soldiers in their backyard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was here. They were seeing it and they were feeling it. And it was a very different idea. In World War One, it was in a different country. All of what we were thinking was uh, America is going to go win things. Lady Liberty is going to um, fix the world. Mm-hmm. And if you thought otherwise... You were wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's this big disconnect between what these soldiers are actually seeing, what this actually feels like, and the romanticized ideal of liberty and righteousness and what we are going to fix and create. George M. Cohan's America. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and part of what makes this concept so cool and what makes it so real is that that, that is what Johnny's experiencing and that everyone else is wrapped up in the magic of the carnival. They're wrapped up in the spectacle and the romanticized ideal of soldiers being away from home and writing letters and having their loved ones tragically die and leaving us with their with their medals. And mm-hmm. these soldiers are being ripped apart. They're coming home and being psychoanalyzed and being stuck in asylums because they don't know how to understand what happened to them. And all the rest of the people are saying, you know, well, you did your duty. I'm sorry that you, how silly, he's deaf now. Or mm. like, oh, well, he'll, he'll get there. And what we see now, what Gabe is talking about too, is that that globalization is so different. We have access to a lot of different materials to be able to know what's happening, to be able to see that daily struggle in anything that we're doing. I mean, in the protests and resisting and what is happening in our world, we're able to see a lot more on the ground what's going on. But that still doesn't change for a lot of people that aren't there. We have, you know, most of Midwest America that really just doesn't understand mm-hmm. what all of that means and what other people are struggling with, what women struggle with every day, what what minorities see on a real day-to-day level. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I, that yeah, carnival. I, yeah. Yeah. That, so yeah. you have this carnival effect <laughs> of everyone that is stuck in the spectacle 
and Johnny, who spends the entire time talking and asking and wondering, and then at the very end gets to sing one song, finally gets to sing a song about what this really means, what actually happened. So I'm wondering how Johnny, as pretty much a pacifist, like how does he end up processing this trauma? Or is that something that is to be seen? Uh... Um, the way that he processes it uh, can be re- there, there. There are simple things like he he uh, starts to work on uh, he starts to whittle toys. There's like very kind of like standard ways that people used to deal with things back then. Um, uh, he creates uh, a debating dis- debating society in his asylum the way that they used to have back when he was in. Um, back when he was younger so there's there's things like that 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 he's that he's processing but i don't think it it doesn't it doesn't change his more he doesn't break he doesn't he doesn't change so the processing is more along the lines of of everything else that he's been experiencing throughout the show uh granted on a much more um epic level like the things that he sees is, is things are things that he's never experienced before, but it it's it's more it goes through the same filter. Mm. It, he experiences um, everything and still comes out of it at the end optimistic. We're, we're we're talking about how the the end of the piece feels, and we don't want it to be like a wah wah like kind of empowering the audience and encouraging the audience to be like resist that kind of thing because that's how Johnny ends up at the end he's gone through like literal hell he's seen people die he's been shot himself he's lost the one person that he thought was gonna start a family with him um, because he has no other family and like all of that's gone everything everything about his life he has no home he's homeless on the street and he's still like yeah I don't think war's the way to go. And that's what that last song does, really, mm-hmm. in the show that, that Gabe, as Johnny sings, um, is that, as Gabe says, like this man has lost everything, and yet he's like, you know what? I still have hope. I've still got my principles. Somehow I'm going to come out on top. And I think in interpreting the piece, we felt that we owed it to our audience here and now to deliver that message, mm. that we couldn't, in good conscience, do a show which was like, we should probably just give up. Instead, we needed to have this piece end and be able to say, resist, keep the faith, stay close to the people that you love, and keep fighting the fight. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we have a few minutes left, so the last thing we always do with our guests on our episodes is um, a one-minute shout-out with each guest <coughs> to talk about, to uh, plug anything they have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like an upcoming production. Um, it can also include um, self-care things, uh, people, other people that you think are doing dope work. Um, so go right ahead. I'm going to pull up the dates. In any order that you'd like. <laughs> Katie Galetti. <laughs> Would you like to go first? <laughs> um, obviously, come see Johnny Johnson. Uh, we open June 24th. Um, and we run for three weekends. So a lot of chances to see it. Um, I think it's going to be a really great project. Um, Getting the specific dates. Hold on. Ah, keep going. Keep going. La la la. And also, obviously, there's a lot of really great theater in this city. Um, go out and do new things and see new things and try stuff. I mean, Gabe and I were laughing because I know George from a previous project, but I 
don't do dialogue. <laughs> I do now, apparently. Um, and I did not have any concept of kind of music theater stuff. And I went in and said, I, d I don't care. Let's just do something and have fun and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing this really cool show because of it. And try stuff new. Take ownership of your artistry and see what happens. Enjoy making art that makes people think. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's cool. And there's a lot of stuff in the city doing that now. I, Ragtime at the Den is one of those things that you're talking about mm -hmm. that's really condensed. It's going to be a great show. Um, a lot of good musical theater stuff out there happening. Go see stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's at stage 773 on Belmont, uh, June 24th, 25th, June 30th, July 1st and 2nd, and then July 6th, 7, 8, and 9. The Sunday shows are at 2, everything else is at 730. Cool. Um, and <clears throat> tickets are available either through a Chicago Folks Operata website or their Facebook page. They're also on Twitter. Um, easy ways to get in contact with that and lots of opportunities to come see it. Uh, this is the longest show I've ever done mm -hmm. uh the longest run i've ever done especially in chicago what about um damn yankees in pittsburgh <laughs> <laughs> apologies yes <laughs> Thank how you. could you <laughs> in chicago there's there there's a yeah. identifier there in chicago my longest run um but this is actually um the the kind of after this i go home and teach uh, i direct a couple of kids shows aladdin jr and um no, Aladdin Kids. Aladdin Sun. Aladdin Kids and uh, Beauty and the Beast Jr. So if you want to fly to Wilmington, Delaware and come see those shows. I want a beautiful know. floor and a single chair. <laughs> yeah. Every single time. Aladdin just, right. Yeah, I'm going to make one George. Carpet. I'm going to make George proud. One carpet. <laughs> Everything happens on the magic one carpet. carpet. <laughs> oh my god. Beautiful gosh. floor and a candlestick. <laughs> So, so no, I, I am using all of my time to just promote the heck out of uh, Yoni Jonsson. Nice. Because um, I would What's really... <laughs> we haven't been it's talking... Just, it's the Swedish version. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> no, it, really, it really is such a meaningful uh, production for me. It's by far the biggest thing that I've uh, uh, taken on. And the fact that George is... is uh, headlining this thing because uh he's really steering this ship to where it needs to go um i i am gonna obviously plug johnny johnson but the reason to see it is that you might never have a chance to see it again like mm. it just is not done i mean mm -hmm. if you like kurt vile's music and we haven't talked a lot about the music the music is great i mean it really sounds like kurt vile i mean it is banjos and calliopes and organs and clarinets and it just sounds so great uh i had somebody write to me from minnesota who was like I love Kurt Vile. I'm trying to figure out if I should come and, and see the show or not. You're directing it. Can can you sort of I wanna go, my wife doesn't. Can you convince her? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I I just don't know when you're ever gonna see it again. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. It was the once I think the last uh, they do staged readings, I think, the last time it happened. There was one in London in like twenty eleven. Yes. There was best. one in New York in like the last seven years, I think. Yeah, but yeah. And this is that, yes. This yeah. is it. This is it, and it's and it's one hell of a production, and I think that it's it is worth not only people's artistic time but people's um, human humanistic time. Like mm -hmm. it, this is this is something for your for your psyche as well as just for like yeah, it's a play <laughs> kind of kind of thing going on. It it'll really um, it's just so gosh darn applicable mm -hmm. to what we're dealing with right now, and I think it speaks to a lot of that. 
Cool. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. Uh, if you want to keep up with what we're up to, there are a ton of ways to do that. You can head over to scopymag.com. That is our website. We have all of our articles from the last, uh, actually, three years from there, are on there, rather. Um, you can also uh, keep up with us on the old social media. Uh, that uh, first place would be Facebook, Scopy Magazine. Uh, that is also where we've been posting all of our uh, upcoming events. Um, for those that don't know, we are doing our Scopy Sessions series, which is a three-month performance series uh, on Tuesday nights in Pilsen at Nightcap Coffee and on Thursday nights up at Redline Tap in Rogers Park. Heartland. Uh, Heartland. Sorry, they changed the name. Um, Heartland. Um... Yeah, and so we just, on Tuesday night, we just had our 24 Italian Songs and Arias, all of our performances um, we are recording and uploading to the podcast, so if you want to catch it, because you missed it, please listen. Uh, there was some really great singing going on that night, it was really fun. Uh, Thursday night, so tonight, we're going to release this episode in a couple hours, so that y'all know. Um, uh, we are doing uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, we have a six-piece uh, string ensemble playing through the Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which I'm really fucking excited about. Um, they are going to be here at noon to run through the whole thing for the first time, and I'm sure they're gonna—they're all brilliant musicians, so it's gonna be fine. And then next week, um, we are doing Tuesday and Thursday, where are both Rossini nights. The Tuesday night being songs, and the Thursday night being chamber music. So uh, yeah, please head over to our Facebook page, check those events out. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Both of those handles are at Scopy Mag. S A S C A P I M A G. And as always, I'm here to emphasize the importance of donations. We run on a shoestring budget. Uh, we are doing a shitload of performances and have not a shitload of money. So um, we would love to be able to further flesh out our plans. Um, we have June and July fully booked, but we don't have anything in August realized. And that's partially because we figured that more people would find out about what we were doing and would be interested in working with us. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to have options open. But we're also hoping that we have more of a budget yeah. by then. <laughs> and so that we can do something a bit larger scale in august and quite frankly if not we'll just keep doing more of the same but with your help we can expand and mm -hmm. with the end of this by the end of the summer do something really spectacular so um if you head to our website scopymag.com if you go to our about section um you can either become a monthly subscriber for as little as five dollars a month um if you do that we will give you a shout out on the show. Also, going forward, any shows that we do in our apartment, you will have access to. Um, I'll make hummus. There will be wine. We will. There are cats. cats. So um, it'll be really fun, and it'll be like a nice little intimate time. And mm -hmm. yeah, it'll be great. So um, if you do a one-time donation, we will get in t contact with you. Thank you personally. These donations really mean the world to us. So um, yeah. Cool. Give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out, out and make, make something. something. <laughs> <laughs>